If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to our sermon text today, which is found in Galatians chapter 5. You can find this passage on page 916 of the Black Pew Bible, page 916. Uh, We are continuing this series on the Holy Spirit leading up to the summer. We have this week and next left, and today we're going to look at these last three of the fruit of the Spirit, the last three that you can find in the end of verse 22 through verse 24. Uh, But as our custom has been, I'm going to read starting in verse 13 to once again remind us of the whole context and the teaching about the Holy Spirit that we find here. Let's hear God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. I don't know what you think the answer to this question is, but I've got an idea for my own opinion. What do you think the highest compliment that you can pay someone is? What do you think that is? What's the highest compliment that you can be paid or that someone can pay you? In my own personal opinion, it's this, that someone would say, his private life or her private life matches his public life or her public life. Have you ever heard that? Uh, Just this last week, our denomination, the PCA, lost two burning and shining lights, two men who had uh, been a part of the history of our denomination from nearly the beginning. Uh, Harry Reeder died of a car wreck uh, just a few days ago, and the next day, Tim Keller passed away after a long uh, battle with cancer. And as I was reading uh, reflections on both of those men's lives, that that very thing came out. I was especially struck by the article about Tim Keller. Someone said, the Tim you knew in private was the same Tim you knew in public. The same one standing in front of thousands of people was the same one in his living room. And I thought as I heard that, I hope someone is able to say that about me. What about you? Well, these last three fruit of the Spirit, I think, are really getting at that very issue. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives 
in order to change us. We've talked about this over and over, that in order to change our lives, the Spirit changes us. He changes you. And the heart, literally the heart of that change is your heart. It's who you are on the inside. It's who you are in your private life. Uh, John Stott pointed out how the first three fruit of the Spirit really focus on who we are before God. The second three focus on who we are with others. And these last three, John Stott said, are about who we are when we're alone. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who are you when no one is looking? If you'll look at your Bible, I want to talk you through three things as we consider these three fruit. Uh, First of all, I want us to see why our hearts matter more than anything else, why the inside life matters more. Secondly, I want us to see what God is looking for in our hearts. And finally, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit renews us or changes us at that level. Okay? So first of all, why does the heart matter? Well, the Bible gives a very clear answer to this question. The heart matters because out of the heart flows everything we do. Think about this. Uh, No one has ever blamed the ocean for the pollution of the river. Y'all with me? You hear it all the time. The ocean is polluted. Why? Because of all the runoff coming down the rivers, coming, you know, through the various sewer systems and all that kind of stuff that are flowing into the ocean. But no one ever said, hey, the river's dirty because the ocean's dirty. It's a simple reason why. Because it's the river that empties into the ocean, not the other way around. We always blame what is upstream for what is downstream. And in Scripture, the Bible often talks about this. And this is what Paul is getting at by saying that the culminating fruit are faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These three are preeminently internal virtues. Now, it's not that the other fruit of the Spirit are not internal. They are. But as we already noted, based on what John Stott had said, I, I agree with John Stott, that the other ones are more clearly external in their manifestation. These three, you almost wonder, can you even see them always on the outside? They almost seem to be exclusively internal. Especially when you think about something like self-control. How do you know someone's self-controlled? You can know whether they behave on the outside, but you don't know why they're behaving. Or why they're misbehaving. You don't know whether they're controlling themselves or whether they're just doing it because of pressure. Some kind of outside pressure coming in. You can't see these things. They're internal realities. And the reason Paul is saying this is because he is united with the whole Bible which says your heart is the source of everything you do, of every part of your life. Think about, uh, for example, that famous story of when David was anointed king. I I I like to remind you of this story often if I can. David was the runt of his family. Samuel was sent to anoint a king in Jesse's house. No one thought that David was the guy. No one Not his dad, not his brothers, not Samuel. And yet, what did God say to Samuel? This is very important and very famous. Samuel, anoint David because men look on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart. 
In other words, of all the things in your life that God is most closely inspecting, if we could talk that way, the thing in your life God most desires to see uh, changed and bearing the fruit that he sent his son for you to bear, it's your heart. It's your inner person. That's why the Bible later says, guard your heart above all else in Proverbs. Guard your heart above all else. No matter what you do, if you don't do anything else in your life, do this, guard your heart. Why? Because out of it flows everything you do. That's the rest of the proverb. Everything you do flows from it, therefore guard it. Now it's true, I think, that our society to a degree recognizes this. To a degree. After all, we live in the age of the heart in many ways. Everybody's talking about your heart. Except we tend to think of the heart in almost the opposite way that the Bible thinks about it. Consider this. The Bible says, guard your heart. Our culture says, follow your heart. Do you hear the difference? Is it a subtle difference? I don't think so. I think it's a radical difference. It's a difference that cannot be harmonized. You cannot put those two things together and believe them both at the same time. You're either a garter of your heart because you know that out of it can come both good and bad. Or you're a follower of your heart assuming that everything you feel is good. You can't be both. The Bible says God looks upon the heart. Our culture almost says God is your heart. Is that a subtle difference? I don't think so. I think the difference between those two things is like night and day. And so while almost all of us believe in the importance of the heart, because that's what we were trained to believe in our society and culture, we believe the heart matters more than anything else, I think we need to return to the Bible on this point. The heart cannot be blindly followed. The heart must be guarded. Your heart is not God. But, let me give you something, good news, God looks upon your heart. He looks upon your heart not only to judge it and evaluate it, which he does, but this text is telling us he looks upon your heart in order to transform it, in order to shepherd it, and in order to change it into what he wants it to be. The Bible says, when it regards our hearts, the Bible says this, you must be born again. You must be given a new heart. And God, in his son Jesus Christ, has come to do that very thing. To take out our hearts of stone, our hearts out of which flows all kinds of poison, and to put within us a heart of flesh. A heart that issues in real life-giving qualities like the ones we see listed here. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's a simple question. How attentive are you to your heart? How attentive are you to it? I'm, I'm saying in this point the same thing that our culture says. Pay attention to your heart. I'm saying the same thing, except I'm saying it with the opposite meaning. <laughs> Pay attention to your heart because that thing's deceptive. Pay attention to your heart because that thing is powerful. Pay attention to your heart because God pays attention to your heart, and he's got an agenda for your heart. Y'all know that? Everybody hear what I said? God has an agenda for your heart. And it might not match yours right away. It might not match yours at any given moment, but he's got an agenda. 
And if you give your life over to the Lord through Jesus, he will shape your heart in new directions. Which leads us to our third thing, the treasure of the heart. What is God looking for when he looks upon the heart? Well, that's where we get to these three uh, very beautiful fruit there at the end of verse 22 and 23. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in order to illustrate how these three go together, I want to take you back again to the story of David. Uh, God says, I don't look on the outward appearance, I look at the heart, therefore anoint David king. What was it about David's heart that God looked upon and said, that man is the king that I have chosen for myself? Well, if you know the story, you know. David was anointed king because Saul had been rejected king. Saul didn't have the heart that God wanted. David did. What was the difference between those two men, Saul and David? That's going to get us to, I think, a really important understanding of these three fruit. What's the difference between Saul and David? Well, was it this? Was it that one man needed grace and the other one didn't? Was that what was different? Everybody can say no, right? Both of these men needed grace. Was it that one man was a sinner, the other wasn't? Nope. Was it that one man's heart issued in poison and the other one didn't? No. What was the difference? Y'all know. God said about David, he is a man after my own heart. Saul was rejected because he was not. His heart was not after God's own heart. David was after God's own heart. Let me put it another way. Let me give you another Bible phrase. Saul did not fear the Lord. David feared the Lord. David feared God. You've heard that phrase. We used to say about someone, that's a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. What did that mean? We don't hear that much anymore, although I think we should resurrect it. Because it's an eminently biblical phrase. It's everywhere in the Bible. Look it up. What does it mean to be a God-fearing person? Does it mean you run away from God in terror and you don't want to have anything to do with him because he's too scary? Nope. It's not what David did. In fact, you could make a case that that was more Saul's point of view of God. He was afraid of God in a terror sense. David feared the Lord in another way. David feared the Lord the way that a child respects, loves, obeys a good father. He trembled at God's word. That is, when he heard God speak, he took it seriously. He searched the Bible for what God wanted him to do and what God wanted him to think and believe, and he followed through with it. He was committed to God's way in his life rather than to his own way or some other way. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It means to have a healthy respect for God that seeks conformity to his will. Now I want you to look again at Galatians chapter 5 and look at those three fruit, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I want to submit to you that those three are a description of the fear of the Lord. When God is looking on a person's heart, he is looking for people who fear his name. And what that looks like is faithfulness. The word there in Greek is literally just the word faith, actually. It's just faith. 
Same word that's used for we are saved by faith. But the word could also mean in certain settings faithfulness as it's translated here, meaning you live in a way that's consistent with your faith, with your trust or belief. And I think that is what it means in this case. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. It's a person who is devoted with all of their heart to do what God has asked them to do. To think the way God asks us to think. This is a person who takes God's word as his or her rule. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Gentleness seems obvious, right? But I think oftentimes when we think of gentleness, we think of, you know, Mr. Rogers or something. Now, I love Mr. Rogers. Grew up watching him. I'm sure he was a great man. But that's not necessarily the biblical view of gentleness. Gentleness is not merely niceness. I've tried to reiterate that over and again in the fruit of the Spirit. God is not just trying to make you nice. Because nice can be achieved for many different reasons. People can be nice to get things or to be a star on TV. Not accusing Mr. Rogers of that, but that could have been a possible motive. We don't know. God knows. Here's what gentleness is. Gentleness is being kind and humble before other people because your heart is duly humble before God. That's gentleness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. A humble heart before God. The person who is rough, the person who... Uh, attacks, the person who berates, the person who abuses, obviously doesn't have a humble heart before the Lord. The person who plays nice for their own advantage does not have a heart humble before the Lord. The gentle person has a humble heart before God, therefore a humble heart before people. And then finally, our favorite, everybody's favorite, right? Self-control. When you think about that one, what do you think? You may think of the cookie jar at home or the chocolate that you like to indulge in. And you think, man, I don't have self-control because I get back into the cookie jar. i got to have two or three more. Well, I want you to see that there, again, is more to it than simply controlling your diet. Uh, self-control actually is a beautiful virtue because it speaks to what a person does when no one else is looking. And it speaks to what you do when no one else is looking because of why you do what you do when no one else is looking. Okay? Now think about this. The person who doesn't go back to the cookie jar, there may be many reasons why they don't. Think about what some of those reasons are. Those reasons may not be because they want to honor the Lord their God in all things. The reason may simply be they want to be seen as beautiful and fit and whatever other thing. They want to be praised for their outward appearance. There's all kinds of reasons why people might not reach to the cookie jar. And not all of them are pure and good. They may be self-righteous towards those who do reach for the cookie jar. Right? That's a bad thing too. Here's what self-control in the Bible is. It's me doing what I believe God is calling me to do based on his word. Simply because he called me to do it. Because I love God. That's self-control. The heart that is shaped by love for God. What that means is when no one else is watching, 
I'm still going to do the same thing that I would do if they were watching, the right thing, because God is watching both times. Y'all hear me? God is watching when I'm in public, and God is watching when no one else is watching. If I'm motivated by love for God, I'm going to behave the same way in both settings, at least in terms of goodness. Now, I understand, of course, you know, you let your hair down in private. I'm not talking against that. What I'm talking against is sinning in private and covering it up in public. You won't do that if you understand God is watching you in both settings and if your heart really is aimed at what God sees and wants to do what God wants to do. Now, I want you to think about these three because who in Scripture perfectly exhibits these three characteristics? This is a time for the Sunday school answer, y'all. I know, I know we're trained to not give the, answer, the Sunday school answer, but now's your chance. Who is it? Jesus. Actually, yeah, so true. This is so profound, actually. Even David. David was a man after God's own heart, but David didn't perfectly exhibit these all the time in every situation. David had a mix of good and bad within him, as we all do. But Jesus Christ was pure faithfulness. Pure gentleness, pure self-control. Think about just that one scene of the Garden of Gethsemane. Y'all know the garden I'm talking about? The garden Jesus struggled in the night before he was crucified? Notice how he showed faithfulness. God, your will be done. Even though it's going to mean the cross, God, your will be done because my heart is obsessed with the will of God gentleness remember when Peter took out the sword and served up a dish of non-gentleness by cutting off the ear of the high priest servant how did Jesus respond put your sword away Peter took the man's ear put it back to his head and healed the man's ear what gentleness Jesus is the one under attack. And yet he responds with humble, self-giving service. You want to talk about self-control? Think about the garden. Not only does Jesus say, your will be done, but what did he say before it? Not my will be done. That's self-control. Not my will. Now people say, well, does that mean Jesus wanted something different than God the Father? No. It doesn't also mean that Jesus was had sinful desires that he was having to put to death. Jesus had no sinful desires at any time in his life. Praise be to God, right? He was a perfect human being. But what it does mean is that as a human being, I'm sure there were things he wanted that he had to say no to. They were good things, but he couldn't have them anymore because he had to go to the cross. Just as an example, his continued presence with his, with his disciples. Didn't he want that? Didn't he want to spare them the pain of having to see what was about to happen? Of course. These were real good desires, human desires. And yet Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Self-control. Saying no even to things that might be good because they're not best in a particular situation. Now think about your own heart. How devoted to God is your heart? Your will be done. 
How humble is your heart? Put your sword away, Peter. How motivated by love are you? God, you're watching. And so I'll say no to bad things, of course, and I'll say no even to good things if it means the greater good of your kingdom because my heart is fixed on you. Is that your heart? If you're a Christian, to some degree, the Bible says, that is your heart. That's your new heart. The new heart you have been given. Now, of course, just like David, unlike Christ, we continue to have all kinds of stuff, other things swirling around in us besides those three characteristics. Right? We still have unfaithfulness in us. We still have lack of gentleness and and, uh, abusiveness within us. We still have a lack of self-control. And so how does the Spirit renew our hearts? This is the last thing today. How does he renew people like us who are broken up with this conflict within? And I want to show you in verses 23 and 24 how the Spirit does it. He does it by way of an organic process. It's an organic process. It's not a mechanical process. Listen to what one writer says. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but hang with me. It's important, I think. He says, fruit is the result of a long organic process. Everybody agree? The process is complex and intricate. Fruit isn't something made, manufactured, or engineered. It isn't the product of drawing boards or committee committee meetings or sophisticated technologies. It's the result of a life of faith that is both germinated and nurtured by God's Spirit. People who live a life of faith often find fruit appearing in unlikely places and at unanticipated times. That is, we find that there's far more to our lives than we bring to them. We don't produce fruit by our own efforts. We don't purchase it from someone else. It isn't a reward for doing good deeds like a merit badge, a gold medal, or a blue ribbon. It's simply there by the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. An organic process. Now take a look at verses 23 and 24 and you see there are two parts to the process. The first is this. Against such things, there is no law. Did you hear what he just said? Why is it significant that the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit plants in us and grows organically? What's the significance of that? That none of those things are against the law of God. All of those things are in favor of the law of God. Well, here's the advantage. That law-keeping is now no longer something that we have to do by our own efforts alone. Law-keeping is now something we can do. Yes, it takes effort, but it's something we do by the organic power of the Holy Spirit resident within us. We obey in the same way that we're saved in the first place by grace through faith. By focusing ourselves on what Christ has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is doing within us, we come to the law and we find instructions which now our hearts harmonize with. 
Before we become Christians, we are enemies to God's law. It is a bunch of bad news, a whole bunch of bad news. It cramps our style. God telling us not to do all these things that we want to do. God telling us to do all these things we don't want to do. It's like eating your broccoli and your spinach for a child. That's the way the law of God is before you're given a new heart by the new birth. But when you get a new heart and the Spirit begins to plant these things, the law becomes our life. The law becomes this delight, right? Like David says in Psalm 119, Your law, O Lord, is like honey from the honeycomb. I can't get enough of it. I will reach back into that cookie jar every day. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have a very big misconception about this, don't we? We think that the law has nothing more to do with us as Christians. It's gone. Simply because we're saved by grace, not by law. Well, that's not true. We are saved by grace, not by law. So that we might fall in love with the law through the Holy Spirit. No longer as a way to earn our salvation, but now as a way to express our salvation which has been freely given. The law awakens us to our need for the gospel. And then the gospel, listen to this, the gospel promises as a gift of grace all that the law requires. Did y'all hear what I said? The The gospel promises as a gift of grace everything the law requires. The law says don't murder. The gospel says I will make you a person who loves people and doesn't murder. The law says don't steal and don't covet. And the gospel says I will make you a person who's content with your circumstances and is grateful for what God gives you. The law says don't lie. The gospel says I will put my truth in your heart and your inward parts. The gospel promises everything the law requires. Therefore, setting the heart free. Giving the heart everything it needs to obey the Lord. And then I want you to look now at the second part of this organic process. Not only against such things is there no law, but in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this language of crucifying the flesh is found in many parts of the Bible, but it's never found like this. Okay, I'm going to give you a Good Bible fact. Y'all ready for it? This is the only place that Paul uses crucified in an active sense as something that we Christians are to do. Every other place, like in Galatians chapter 2, 21, for example, I have been crucified with Christ. That's a passive. It has been done to me. I have been crucified with Jesus. That's the way he talks in every other place. But here he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, meaning I've done it. The second part of this organic process of fruit bearing in our lives is not only that God plants within us all these wonderful new desires which are in harmony with his word, but he also hands to each Christian a hammer and some nails And he says, by faith in Jesus Christ, O Christian, conquer. By faith in Jesus Christ, drive the nail 
into those desires and passions which war against me, your beloved Father, your gracious guest, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Drive the nail in everything that goes against me. Do it. Have no pity on your sin. Don't be like Saul, who spared the king of the Amalekites when God told him, destroy the king of the Amalekites. Be like Samuel, who hacked him to pieces before the Lord. That's what Paul's saying, and I just lost my notes. So we'll see what happens from here on out. That's what Paul's saying. You've got a hammer, you've got a nail. You have been crucified with Christ, but now crucify your flesh. Once for all, drive the nail. Do not give room to those passions and desires which we all have, which war against God. Don't show them mercy. Hack them to pieces before the presence of the Lord. Be aggressive. Cut your hand off. Pluck your eye out. That's Jesus, right? I'm not saying that literally. Neither was he. But he means it spiritually. Pluck your eye out. Cut off your hand. Cut off your leg. Whatever it takes. Show no mercy. I died that you might be a new man, a new woman. Join me. Take the hammer. Take the nail. Drive it in. Let the organic process flourish. I have planted in what is good. Now you root out and weed out all that is evil. And I'm with you every step of the way. That my presence, my spirit has been fully invested into your life so that you can do this very thing by my strength. Wow. In order to change us and to change our life, God changes us. He changes the heart. God cares about the heart because out of it flows everything you do. He's looking for hearts that fear his name. And the only way that can happen is if you belong to Christ. Amen.